I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro. And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Dr. Erica Whitaker is a nationally recognized American physician, public health specialist, and licensed investment professional. For over 30 years, he has served in public and private roles that have blended his medical, management, and financial expertise to develop innovative healthcare solutions for underserved populations. He is also the founder and CEO of Zing Health, a new community-focused tech-enabled Medicare Advantage HMO plan. Eric heads TWG Partners, a double bottom-line international investment and development firm. TWG Partners recently launched Sable Capital Advisors, LLC, the first and only venture capital firm dedicated to impact investing in healthcare firms focused on the underserved. Dr. Whitaker earned his MPH from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, an MD from University of Chicago's Pritzker School of Medicine, and a BA from Grinnell College. He rebranded and repositioned the Chicago Area Health and Medical Careers Program into the Creating Pathways and Access to Student Success Foundation, CPAS Foundation, a nonprofit designed to increase the number of minority students entering healthcare. Dr. Whitaker serves on the boards of the nationally renowned Healthcare Incubator Matter, Grinnell College, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He is married to Dr. Cheryl Whitaker, a medical doctor, health equity leader, and also a serial entrepreneur. Welcome, Dr. Eric Whitaker. Welcome, Dr. Whitaker. It's, it's good to be here with you both. Wow. And you know, your bio is amazing, but I will say that it's much, much longer than that. You have a long, long, long line of accolades and successes and other things you're working on. This is really just a snapshot. So, I mean, you know, you're just, you're killing it. I'm lucky to have gotten started early. That's, you know, that's <laughs> that, you know it, it, which is uh, true. I, you know, I, I pretty much have been in, you know, sort of leadership positions as a student from before medical school. So how did you actually get into medicine. What was the space when you were younger that said, I'm going to be a doctor? Talk about your origin story around that. Well, if you listen to my mother, she would say that she had three young African-American boys, and she whispered in each of our ears when we were young that we would all become doctors, and I was the only one that listened. (laughs) So, so, you know, my mother was a uh, registered nurse and got introduced to you know, healthcare through her work, but also was very fortunate to, when I was 15, to get exposed to the Chicago Area Health and Medical Careers Program, uh, which is about 1982. And, and that was the first time I met an African American doctor and saw that I could become one because I, you know, I saw someone who, who was from a similar background as mine. I think becoming a doctor is really huge. I know that when I was a kid, I definitely never dreamed of being a doctor. It takes an extraordinary amount of schooling as well. I mean, you're in school for a long time (laughs) and the debt burden is gigantic. So what was the place when you were going through all of your education that you decided you wanted to work 
in the field you're in now, which is really, to me, what I'm, what I, what I understand about you, it's focused on health disparities. Yeah, well, it, it, it's funny because I, I often rib my kids when they complain about school and tell them I went to the 24th grade, so I, you know, I don't want <laughs> to hear about grade. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear about, uh, you know, uh, ninth grade being uh, too hard. I, I, I've uh, never actually heard the 24th grade before. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, when you you add up all of the time and truly. Uh, you know, going through medicine is hard. I, you know, I, if I know what I know now, I don't know if I could do it again. <laughs> so it's it's that hard. You know, my wife and I are both physicians, as you mentioned at the outset, and we had over $300,000 worth of debt when we finished. And we bought a house, and our house debt was less than the amount of educational debt we had. And, and we finished paying that off when I was 42 years old. <laughs> so, you know, really going into medicine was a bet on our, ourselves and particularly given our inclinations towards working with underserved populations and, you know, being unclear how we're going to pay all of that back. But, you know, we, we figured it all out and, and are in a very different place today. When did you decide that you were going to work on that specifically, though? Because you could have gone into any type of medicine. Well, you know, it's funny. I think uh, in medicine, not unlike in a lot of other careers, black and brown folks sort of get steered to the lesser paying fields. But at the same time, it's sort of where we want to be anyway, right? <laughs> From the time I was in high school, knew that I wanted to be a doctor, but not so much in an individual exam room, but dealing with, with communities and populations. And the CHAMPS program, one of the ideas that, that stayed with me through my career is then it was called social medicine. Today it would be probably called social determinants of health. But the idea that there are a lot of forces beyond just health care that impacts the health of a community and a family and an individual in, in that family and community. Um, that was something that got taught to me when I was 15 or 16 years old. So when I went to medical school, you know, I also knew I was going to public health school. So, the, you know, the sort of orientation I have towards my work, I got very early and it's carried through, and, and that passion has helped propel me forward. Since we're talking about CHAMPS, how long were you in CHAMPS, and mm. what was the experience being there that helped you transform and decide to fully focus into the public health space? Because mm. you got the seed planted at CHAMPS. Yeah. I don't know if you ever leave CHAMPS. Okay. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I uh, you know, in my, following my junior year of high school, we spent the summer at Champs. Uh, next summer, I did a preceptorship at Cook County Hospital where I followed a physician around for the summer. The year after that, I was a counselor uh, in the program, you know, and, and was basically a resident advisor on the campus and oversaw high school students who were, you know, living on the campus at that time. And, you know, Champs at every point in my life has been supportive uh, you know, at one point I was going to get kicked out of medical school, and the head of champs showed up, uh, and he said to me, uh, they want to kick you out. <laughs> I was only African-American out of 112 people at University of Chicago my first year. Uh, I think there were four of us in the whole school, and this is 1987. <laughs> and I told him, I said, uh, they're going to have to carry me out of here. I'm not going easy. And uh, Mr. Bradley picked up his hat, and he said, that's all I need to hear. And he just got up and left. You know, you had people who helped you all along the way uh, when things got tough and saw you through to the end. How has CHAMPS transformed? Because now it's CPAS Foundation. So yep. talk a little bit about what you've done there and in terms of 
transforming the organization? Did you take it over? Is this mm-hmm. your organization now? Champs was fully supported by state dollars. And there's been different funding sources over years. Uh, foundations like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation supported it. And at that at the time, RWJ was a supporter. All of the medical schools in Chicago were, were around the table, and their dean of students were involved. When that funding went away, you know, some of the link with the medical uh, schools were lost. But John Bradley was always a constant, really on the the, the force of his personality and, and his connections. He was able to help thousands of, of students, uh, black, brown, Filipino, white, get into medical school. And, and as you say, retention is a key issue. So probably, uh, you know, after about uh, 2007, 2008, you know, I became really concerned that John was getting up in years and was concerned about what would happen if he if he were not there. Uh, and I tried to move the CHAMPS program, which had been based at IIT since 1979, to the University of Chicago. And uh, for whatever reasons, they didn't want to move with me. Fast forward, at the time we had a two-year budget impasse here in the state of Illinois, the, the monies for CHAMPS dried up and it closed. And so uh, John called me up and asked me if I could help. And, I, you know, I, I got involved and, um, and ended up getting the money turned back on. Part of the deal uh, with that was that, you know, I would have to be more hands-on. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, there were things that, that frankly, need to be refreshed and updated with the model. And so, uh, you know, the transition to the CPAS Foundation has allowed us to, to get the support from the state. We also are, are, don't want to be dependent only on the state and so are, have laid the groundwork to begin taking corporate philanthropy and philanthropy from other quarters. We also have built in this uh, whole idea around uh, health technology because, you know, if, if you look at where jobs are going, there are going to be jobs in healthcare and technology. And we think that the intersection of those two things are important. And to be able to really take advantage of that opportunity, we have to get to kids very early on and, and get them trained in STEM. And then they can decide where they want to go from that educational foundation. They can go into health tech or they can go into health professions. But the, you know, the STEM is a common pathway for all of the kids. Yeah, I mean, you're really passionate about this. And I guess... They didn't ask anybody else to help champs with champs. I've been fortunate that having been a former state health commissioner of Illinois, um, I know the politics and, you know, and it, it came to the last hour. I, I can tell you, like, literally, if we hadn't got, gotten a yes from the Speaker of the House in Illinois, the money was never coming back. Um, you know, we had got done the work on the Senate side and and uh, Senator Donnie Trotter who had shepherded that on the Senate side called me and said, it, you know, Lily, you got an hour if you can't get the Speaker of the House to approve this. Uh, and, and it's an not hour? An, an hour. That if it's not in the budget, it likely is never coming back. So CPAS Foundation is filling a gap. Is that foundation the only foundation that's filling the gap of helping African-Americans and other minorities, you know, with their, um, you know, educational process around medicine? I mean, who... I feel like you stand alone, and well, thank I mean, God you were able to make that happen in an hour. There's some programs around. They certainly want to direct students to their own school. Um, you know, we're agnostic to where students are going. We, you know, we 
really if, if they go to University of Chicago or Rush or Loyola, it matters not to us. The, the other thing, frankly, we did that, you know, from a strategic standpoint is we expanded the boundaries of champs from only being about Chicago to being about the state of Illinois. And the thinking there was, why should, if you're an African-American that lives in Peoria or Rockford or, or DeKalb, be denied opportunity just by virtue of you not living in the right place? It strengthens the pipeline in Illinois. It also helps us politically because, you know, oftentimes in in Springfield, things can get divided between those in the south and those in the north uh, where Chicago is. So we expanded the mandate to be beyond just the south and west sides of Chicago. That didn't take long. People are are hungry for opportunity, and so... Well, so, well, Illinois is a hungry state. We are hungry. We're hungry for everything. We are hungry for everything (laughs) here. So Zing Health, you have not always had your own companies, but you know now you're you know fully in. Um, what is Zing Health? Talk about that, and when did it start, and what's it trying to accomplish? Zing Health, as you mentioned, uh, is a Medicare Advantage plan that, that has is started by a, a couple African American physicians. Uh, it's tech enabled, and really we see it as filling a void in in the landscape related to other. Uh, Medicare Advantage plans because we we want to really go after uh, the African American and Latinx senior population and and do that from a community perspective. Really, most of the other plans their their game is to uh, enroll healthy, uh, mostly white people, <laughs> and hope that they don't use health services and then profit from it. We want to take on ill patients and help move them to a, a, a place of better health. You know, I've been working on this probably the last couple years. Um, I was uh, initially was going to get backed by one of the large uh, incumbent health insurers. Uh, they went through a merger and you know put me on the back burner and uh, and so I lost a year in being in the marketplace and went out to San Francisco and ended up finding a couple of venture capital firms uh, that wanted to back me and and got. Uh, some uh, other angel investors. And one of the things I'm proud of is that we were very intentional about who would invest in us. And a third of our seed money is actually from African-Americans. When you look at companies that are are venture-backed, oftentimes African-Americans don't have an opportunity to invest in those companies. And we want to make sure that there was the ability for African-Americans to profit from from our, our work. How did you come up with the name Zing Health? Uh, you know, that, that was a shower, uh, creative moment. <laughs> I mean, I love branding conversations because, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you talk to entrepreneurs and they come up with names and they develop, you know, logos and identities and messages. And it's, you know, entrepreneurs just kind of, they just go and they don't really, really think about it or plan. It. It's not like Coca-Cola, well, right? They don't just develop stuff. You know, in showers, for example. Well, I, I, I talk was, about that process. For I was you. literally <laughs> trying to think of a name that connoted vitality, mm-hmm. energy, youthfulness. It has a little zip to it, and and it's short, and memorable. Um, you know, once you say it, people are like, "Oh, you zing." So I think it works. We'll, we'll we'll find out as as we roll this thing out. Your other company, T 
you know, WG Partners. What's TWG Partners? I don't, you know, it was the Whitaker Group was taking. <laughs> so, I, you know, just uh, put the put the initials uh, together with partners. And um, and, and that, that's been a vehicle since about 2011 that I've invested in different things. And Like what? And, uh, the first uh, company that I co-founded was, you know, we started in, in about 2012, was another uh, health insurance company, and that company uh, was a Medicare Part D insurance company, so pharmaceutical insurance for seniors. Um, a partner and I started that, um, and we took it from a blank sheet of paper to 48 states, uh, 430,000 clients, and $2 billion in drug sales over that three-year period and sold it to United Health Group in January 2016. So that was the first entrepreneurial effort that I was a part of in the public sector. And, and one of the things I said to my wife back around 2012 is, I said, we've been entrepreneurial in government and in not-for-profits. Could we do this on the for-profit side? And, <laughs> Can we please start trying yeah, to make some money? She just sold her company uh, you know, to Molina Healthcare that we founded five years ago, Next Level Health. So we, we, it turns out we can do this. <laughs> so when did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Have you always been one? Did you evolve to become one? And, and did you decide... I'm going to do this now. I'm never going to, you know, go back in any other process, in any other way well, or any other position. Well, I'm, I'm definitely unemployable right now. Unemployable. <laughs> Second time we've heard that yeah, from I an mean, entrepreneur. I, yeah. So I, I, you know, I like controlling my time. I, and, and what's always been true of me is that I've always loved coming up with ideas that were, I believe, to be novel. In the academic setting, I've gotten every grant I've ever written. And you come up with an idea you frame a case for it. They give you money to do it, and then you go implement it. What I was bad at was writing up papers. You know, I didn't care about the academic piece of writing a paper and that sort of thing. What I love is getting money to build new things. And so so I've always been entrepreneurial. I didn't know that was the, the name of what I was doing. But I would I would probably characterize as my consider myself a hustler <laughs> in the best senses of a word. And, you know, have always been that way and now we're just, you know, being subjected to the rigor of the marketplace now, as opposed to you know, it being for an, an academic setting or, or you know, for something I'm doing with with the, uh, a state government. I mean, Esther and I are always always curious about you know the backgrounds of the people that we have on the show. Some entrepreneurs grew up around other entrepreneurs, and others had no visibility to entrepreneurship. Mm. Did you have any visibility to entrepreneurs when you were growing up? None. None? <laughs> None. But but one of the things I am, I'm, I'm, I am a, a student, and uh, I don't get through 24 grades for nothing. And I, I read a lot of biography, reading the stories of J.B. Fuqua, who, you know, the Duke Business School is named after, and him coming from a hard scrabble life in Georgia, and building a conglomerate, that's something that, that resonates with me. And in that, that book that I read probably 10 years, 11 years ago, I underlined a passage. He was on the Forbes 400 list. And he said that if he could have done one thing differently, he would have gotten into insurance. And when I read that, it was like, 
this dude is on the Forbes 400 list, and he said that's what he regretted, and that always stuck with me. And so, now, I don't understand. Now, what is he talking now, about? Now I'm on my third <laughs> insurance company. Well, well, I think what I he, mean, I Astro and I joke sometimes. We're like, we should have gone into uh, paper products, or you know, we should have a company that manufactures you know specimen bags, right? Mm-hmm. Then we could no, I mean, we'd be rich, right? Now people do, you know, mundane utilitarian sorts of things and they do quite well you know think about a metal hanger <laughs> you know i mean there's not a whole lot uh of a thing to it but but the thing i think that uh jb fuqua was getting at is the fact that not in healthcare insurance but in a lot of life insurance companies you, you end up having people's money for a long long time and you can use that money to invest in other things. And, and frankly, that's what uh, Warren Buffett does. He has a reinsurance company that he collects premiums from other insurance companies to backstop them if they they surpass the risk that they want to take. And he buys companies with those insurance dollars. So it's a, it's another way of using other people's money. But it all came to me from a book. It, I didn't see it anywhere. Books were my, my gateway to thinking about how to do things differently. I do notice now more doctors and people in medicine seem to be moving towards entrepreneurship than I have ever seen. And I'm noticing it on social media. Books being written, workshops and seminars being developed by people in medicine. The other piece I'm noticing are... Um, doctors that develop apps and mm. systems, and they're leaving. They're leaving practice, and they're starting their own companies. Why do you think that's happening? Medicine has changed tremendously. I was very fortunate working at Cook County Hospital. I could take as much time as I wanted to to see a patient, and you know, when I would see a patient for the first time, I would say, "Look." You're going to wait for me? <laughs> it was part of the social contract I with, had with them. I said, you know, the patient may come in, their, their child got killed, and I have to spend time with them. And if that happens to you, I'm going to spend time with you. But you just need to understand you're going to wait. And, and so I could take a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour with a patient. In most uh, other settings, you, you got 10, 15 minutes. And so a lot of why, you know, folks went into medicine – they want to do good. They wanted to have autonomy and be able to manage their own lives in the way they, that they chose. There's been a lot of loss of autonomy. And, and then it's like, a, you know, you're, you're in a factory, <laughs> uh, you know, you're just, you're just a cog in the wheel. And, and also I think that the nature of those of us who are going to medicine are very different. The older school folks are workhorses. They would neglect their family. They would, it was all about their patients. Today, you know, folks want to work you know, nine to five and they have other interests. They want to be with their families. You know, just I think the nature of the person who comes into medicine is very different. It's fascinating to me. Uh, I believe what you're saying that doctors' original desires to become doctors has been lost. I mean, yeah. I don't have any time spent. When I go into the doctor's office anymore, yep. No, I they, mean, they, nobody. There's there's no time to talk. I mean, you can't develop a relationship or a rapport. It's yeah. really difficult. And then there's also you know fear of having too deep of a conversation, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the liability side, right? So it's just 
But, it, but the other thing, the electronic health record mm-hmm. is, is you know, not now when I'm sitting face to face talking with you, now people have their, they're buried in a screen trying to record everything so they can bill. So, so I think there's a lot of dynamics about the, the frankly, at, at Cook County, we didn't have the technology. <laughs> we, you know, we, we only had our humanity and time. Right. And right. so we could spend that time. One of the things that's that's also really awesome about you and your career, you know, your close proximity to the first African-American president, Barack Obama, and first lady, Michelle Obama, I kind of want to know a little bit about, you know, when they went to the White House, how did that influence your career path or what changed? Um, because you were friends with them for a long time before they went mm-hmm. there. So what happened when they? Uh, uh, you know that. that moved you know, I have to tell you, it's been, it was it was a mixed bag. <laughs> um, was it? Yeah, no, it's a mixed bag. Um, the, you know, there are a lot of people who don't like the Obamas, and to the extent I was seen as a extension of them, that was a problem. Uh, Media wise, uh, you know, um, got attacked a fair bit, <laughs> got investigated, <laughs> got, a lot of things came that if I were not their friends, I would not have been subjected to, a hundred percent. On the positive side, you know, I was someone that didn't believe that Barack could get elected as president. And he had a profound belief that he could, and he did it. And it made me step back and say, you know, maybe I'm I'm thinking too small with what I'm doing. And so now, you know, you've known me for a while now, Ginger. You know, me talking about hundreds of millions of dollars rolls off my tongue <laughs> in trying to seek investment and— and anyone who knew me seven, eight years ago would have never. I mean, I, I'm so foreign to who I was then. You know, my wife and I are doing things so foreign to people we train with that they just have their mouth open because we view that the world is open to us and we're going to get ours. That was a positive thing about the uh, um, Obama experience is that it opened my eyes. I got to meet uh, billionaires routinely. And came to the the conclusion that the folks I was meeting were no smarter than anybody I knew, <laughs> and it demystified, um, you know, a lot of you know how wealth is created, and uh, to be able to make a difference in a way that we can make a difference. You know, when you're talking about black entrepreneurs, everyone doesn't have access to the Obamas, and mm. they certainly don't have anybody helping them see the landscape and what it looks like. And now you've seen it, and you know a lot more than you knew then, and it's mm-hmm. mind-blowing. What strategies would you give to a black entrepreneur that's trying to establish and launch their business without having the relationships that you've had? I mean, how hard is it? No, I, I, it's hard even having the relationships I have. Really? No, I, I think it's it's hard. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, you know, I just uh, pulled up uh, over the weekend a Black Enterprise 100 list from 2018. And of the 100 businesses that were listed, only five were from the Chicagoland area, which kind of astonished me. So as I look down the list, the revenue that's there, few of the companies have impressive revenues. There's a tech company out of St. Louis that I think is at 12 or $14 billion. But really, you know, there's not a whole lot of revenue on that list. So yeah, I think there's a, a great deal of opportunity to advance the cause of African-American uh, entrepreneurship. And part of the challenge is convincing 
uh, the current investment community that our businesses are worth it, or secondly, we're going to have to do it ourselves. <laughs> so when I think about Silicon Valley versus Chicago, um, you've been spending a lot of time there. I spend time in Silicon Valley as well because I have clients. Their global headquarters are there. Has your relationship in Silicon Valley and your exposure to networks, is that helping what you're doing with raising money? Are you seeing a different type of money there? What is the difference between Silicon Valley and the Midwest? I mean, what? how has that transformed your process with your businesses and your entrepreneurship? Well, for Zing Health, we've raised $5 million so far. We have two institutional venture capital firms invested, and those are from Silicon Valley. And which ones are those? Um, Caper Capital and Village Global VC. Okay. I have uh, an angel investor of a firm here in Chicago, but no institutional venture capital money from here. Um, I think that the folks from Silicon Valley that have invested are appreciative of a more impact sort of uh, investment that we have. And currently, I'm talking to a number of firms out there that are more impact oriented. So we have that, to go there. It sounds like. I mean, we can't. Yeah, we. Yeah, you like, got I it. mean, is that the? Is that sort of ultimately the thing? Is that when you're black and you're and you're looking to raise money, you have to go to Silicon Valley. And I, I, there's I, no I, black people out there, though, Doctor Whitaker. I, I mean, it's I would pretty, encourage. It's pretty white. No, it's. I mean, but one of the things they recognize they have a problem, though. Is it making a difference? I uh, don't they... know. I can't speak to that. But, yeah, but yeah. they recognize that they have a problem. Uh, okay. You know, I mean, one of the things I love about K-Port Capital is they'll look at any deal regardless of the source. You know, and this is where relationships matter and in investment. Oftentimes, you can't even get a meeting with anyone unless you were introduced by someone who they know. <laughs> So if you as an African-American entrepreneur don't know anyone who's connected to the Silicon Valley venture capitalists, you can't even get a meeting. And the other thing I find impressive is that, uh, you know, you, you know, there are investment bankers, people who, as a matter of course, um, raise capital and they have relationships with all of the investors. Well, in Silicon Valley, if you use an investment banker, they look down on that. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I wanted to use a banker for Zing Health, and my investors, the two venture firms, everyone was telling me, no, you can't do that. So I said, wait a minute, let me get this straight. If I don't have a relationship to get an introduction to uh, people, be, uh, you know, venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, that's a problem. And secondly, if I can't hire the people who do have the relationships, that's a problem. <laughs> it, it, you know, so we, we just are systematically locked out. I wonder, you know, with Silicon Valley and, you know, black people and black business owners, it's a glistening diamond in the desert, pretty much is how I feel about it, Silicon Valley. And there's only a few of us out there. And I don't know the path to get more of us out there because the more black entrepreneurs that can get to Silicon Valley and be in those conversations at a better scale, the more impact and the, and more effective we can be in terms of getting the money. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, the and I don't I just don't know how to get us out there. Well, and I'm, I'm excited that you're out there yeah. and that you're talking to people because you're very vocal. You're an advocate. And, you know, you and Dr. Whitaker, your wife, um, you believe in black entrepreneurship and black self-determination. It's crazy to get out to Silicon Valley from here. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's why it's critically important with Zing Health that, you know, we, we become a unicorn 
and be, you know, build this to more than a, a billion dollars of worth and tell the story about two African-American physicians who birthed this thing. Uh, because you just think about Hollywood. Once you get movies that are are African-American shepherded and captured imagination of, of uh, African-Americans, you know, the, the, the folks in Hollywood understand money. You know, so if Black Panther takes off the way it did, then other people are like, wait a minute, are we missing something? And so I think we, we have to have some rip-roaring successes so that eyes are open uh, because there are markets that are underserved in, in this country, <laughs> just like people go to Brazil and other places. We, we got underserved markets right here, and we need to show, show some ability to, to monetize that in a way that um, investors can understand. So much left to do, it won't end this way. When they find me, I'll never waste a day. The smell of fresh air and all the simple things. Oh, to see the sun, what will tomorrow bring? You know, Esther and I were actually talking about that, Esther, when we were trying to figure out earlier, and we've talked about this for the last few months, where can we go as black business owners to have more success because we talk a lot about Illinois being very, very challenging. Um, there's a crabs in a barrel mentality here, at least from my perspective. I speak for myself. I do feel like there's a little bit of plantation politics going on. And it, it seems like a hostile environment based on the work we've done nationally. Where have you seen some opportunity for black business? I've certainly seen a lot of opportunity for black business in New York and in Atlanta. And it's really interesting to see how the differences in those landscapes, I mean, those are two very different cities on the outside, but something that I, I observed, especially in Atlanta, is that there are a lot more um, black people that are seemingly in power on a, on a dollar side of things. And so the, the hierarchy of who you have to answer to and, and who you go to for certain resources, the landscape just looks a little different. What are your thoughts on that? Do you mm -hmm. see different, different cities shaping um, black business differently? It's one thing to be a political leader and get to a place, but, you know, and, and having been head of a state agency with 2,000 people working in it, you know, we had a, um, I can't remember our budget size, it may have been $400 million, but you have to be very intentional about what you want to happen. So if your, your staff is bringing you vendors and you say, you know, I don't see any uh, African-American or Latinx vendors on this list, uh, go back and come back until you figure it out, that makes a big difference. And so you, leadership matters in terms of moving this conversation forward into action. And Maynard Jackson laid the template, took a lot of crap for doing it at the time he did it, but you know he created a, a bunch of millionaires through doing business with the city of Atlanta. Once uh, you, you got a, a group of people who can contribute uh, philanthropically, politically, and the like, you can, you know, it can perpetuate itself. The thing I would say about New York, there's a friend of mine who's in construction here in Chicago who has contemplated moving to New York. And he, he said that, that going to New York, the size of the business he could get there, he said their crumbs are significantly bigger than what you would get here in, in Illinois. You know, I don't know about why the business environment is different, but, you know, clearly on the government side, there's a lot, a lot more to gain. But it's interesting. If you talk to people in New York and you talk to people in Atlanta, they are jealous of what they see as, as Chicago's 
close-knit black business community. So, so it's, a, it's yeah, an we, interesting thing. We talked about this. So, I <laughs> yeah. mean, I feel like, um, and this, you know, you know, I, I have to say these are my personal views, um, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for them. Um, you know, one of the things that I notice about Chicago specifically for the number of years that I've had a business here, and it's over two decades, there is a visual of power, black power, but it's not backed by money. Yep. Okay, so um, I know it looks a certain way on the outside, but when you really dig down the inside, I'm sorry, there's just the money doesn't seem to be there. And the ability of the black people that are here that have a semblance of having money, they don't really have the authority to write checks or make decisions or or do the, the, the deed that you're talking about, which is insisting on having inclusive practices and also having someone backing them up saying, oh, no, this person's absolutely right. We must make this happen. I, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not seeing that at scale. And I and it's it's very discouraging. What do we want from the political community, the non-black commu- political community, Dr. Whitaker? What do black entrepreneurs need to be asking? Who do they need to be talking to? What are the types of conversations? Do we need to code switch when we're having them? Like, what do, what do we need to do to try to make some change here so that we stop leaving? Well, well I think one of the challenges being able to to write a check and support a, a candidate or or a legislator takes on too much importance here. The other thing I think that is a challenge, you need advocates to hold the political infrastructure, black, white, otherwise, to account. And if all of your businesses are dependent on government contracts, those individuals are less likely to step to the front and, you know, raise a ruckus. You know, if you think about back in the day when you had Johnson Products, uh, Ebony Jet, um, you know, the car dealerships, they weren't dependent on government to feed their businesses. And so they could go to City Hall and demand. But you can imagine if you, you're getting your your fees for financial services or you're managing state pension money or whatever, you're going to have a uh, typically a more muted response because, you, you know, you know where your bread is buttered. What do you think about um, the state of mental health for black entrepreneurs. Um, I feel like it's different, again, you know, in different states. You know, you're an entrepreneur yourself. It's stressful. Mm-hmm. It is, It is. you know, <laughs> terrible eating habits and, um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to survive, not only in terms of the capital raise that you're referring to, but just in terms of the network. The other thing around this is you and Dr. Whitaker are model citizens and model business people in Illinois. I mean, you really I don't, are. I don't know if I accept that, but okay. Well, I'm giving it to <laughs> so, you. I'm yeah. giving it to you because we, I, I don't feel that we have a lot of power couples here in Chicago, especially that are doing work for the people to the extent that you are. How are the two of you managing an entrepreneur relationship, and how are you both managing your health around this? Uh, I would say we're not doing that well. <laughs> Um, I haven't uh, gone to meet with my doctor yesterday, and he uh, uh, cursed me out. Um, so, you know, I made a commitment to him, uh, you know, like two months ago uh, about some things I was going to do to change my health. And I wrote him the other day, and I'm like, dude, I've been to New York, L.A., and San Francisco uh, seven or eight times in December <laughs> looking for money. So, 
I frankly didn't have time to get my eating right because, <laughs> you know, I was trying to keep my business alive, you know. I'm sorry. And so, I'm and trying so, to hold back a laugh because it's he, so he, true. I mean, literally yesterday, he's like, what am I supposed to do with you? He said, you got all these fires burning, and I feel like I'm sitting here watching you do it. So, so some stress is going to be present whenever you, particularly if you take other people's money to build a business because you, you feel a responsibility. But I'm in the midst of trying to close some financing that would set me up for the next four years, and I wouldn't have to be on this money chase uh, routine. And, and, and that's my, to and what I said to my doctor yesterday. I said, look, just let me get through this week, <laughs> and we can revisit all of this. So your mother, <laughs> so your mother told you and your brothers you're going to be doctors. Yep. Are you telling your children you're not going to be entrepreneurs or you are going to be entrepreneurs. I mean, what's the conversation around entrepreneurship? Because you and Dr. Whitaker are entrepreneurs. Well, That's I, powerful. Yeah, we, we talked to them about not being doctors, <laughs> but I'm more. How do you how do you feel about that conversation, Esther? You know, I'm, you know, I, I just, yeah. The, I mean, Esther's. You should have been a doctor, Esther. Yeah. No, I shouldn't have, actually. Um, yeah. It would have been much further along. But it's, you know, when you first sat down, Dr. Whitaker, you were looking through our Honest Field Guidebook. I think you got to a page that said, what did it say? It isn't for everyone or something along mm-hmm. those lines. Yeah. And, no, then, I, and I believe that's true for medicine. It's not for everyone. Exactly. It's not for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Now, we, we need doctors. But, I, you know, I, I think that the 24 years of education, if I had gotten started uh, in what I'm doing, you know, 10 years earlier, <laughs> I, I, you know, I could have changed the world. <laughs> really? But, 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 you know, I wouldn't be who I am without the 24 years. So it's, you know, it's easy for me to say that now. My, our kids, like my son, who's a freshman in college, called me, you know, about two months ago. He's like, Dad, I'm trying to think about what, what business I want to start. And I said, uh, well, why don't we just finish first semester <laughs> and worry about the business later? Uh, the uh, kids are, are seeing what we're doing, and, and they, they're taking it in. Neither want to go into medicine, but we talk to them about the importance of the business of healthcare and why we need people like us in the business of healthcare. I mean, that's a great segue to me for cannabis. I mean, isn't that a business that we can go in? Because I'm thinking, um, you know, Illinois just became recreationally legal January 1st this year. I'm seeing lines and lines of white people lined up for weed. And I, all I can think of is not really the white people, but the generational wealth that's being developed and created. Yep. You've talked a lot about the difficulty of raising capital. You're talking with your son um, about entrepreneurship and starting a business and things like that. Maybe Canvas is the place to develop generational wealth. I mean, you just also mentioned earlier that you're on a four-year path to make changes. That mm-hmm. doesn't sound like generational wealth to me. You know, I guess my question is, I struggle all the time with trying to, to understand how I'm going to build generational wealth. Mm-hmm. I can't figure it out. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how some of the cannabis stuff plays out. Uh, I, I, I was uh, talking with a friend last night, and he put in, uh, he's, he's white. He put in 29 applications for distributorships, and he said it you know, cost $2,500 a license. Uh, you know, I was hearing him talk about this, and then he talked about the social equity piece of it. And as happens all too often in situations like this, at least what I heard him saying was basically going to be a bait and switch <laughs> and, and, and in terms of what happens there. And, I mean, cause we're limited by lack of capital. You can't come in demanding 51% of a business 
if you don't have anything to contribute. So, so I mean, it, you know, I think we may end up unless you know there's some creative ways to to bring money to the fore. You know, being in the same position we're always in. Gotcha. I want to ask about how is Zing Health changing the game? One of the things is with the populations that we're focusing on. Um, like I said really early on, you know, most 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 insurance companies really want healthy people, read white people. And, you know, we're, we're in a country now where people are aging and we're becoming more diverse every day. And to the extent that we take on populations that that have health challenges and help manage those those, those uh, challenges and are able to do it in an impactful financial and health wise way the incumbents are going to start to have to start looking at how we do business and and mimic it you know, we can even see it here in Chicago you know next level would do something and now blue cross blue shield is copying it <laughs> you know it and you know next level for as small as it was in the whole scheme of things uh, for health, for Medicaid health insurance, uh, it it um, has made a lot of uh, uh, impact. And in fact, and with the the purchaser of Next Level, the state of Illinois made them commit to to continue on Next Level's care model because it's differentiated from everybody else in the marketplace. You know, when I think a lot about you know appropriation, it happens in every industry. You mm-hmm. know, it doesn't matter if it's entertainment or fashion or you know makeup, music. You talking about, you know, setting up a foundational platform that another company can come in and copy um, mm. that's not African-American. You know, it, it sometimes discourages me. Um, but the hope that I hear and see is that, um, you know, our communities have a tremendous amount of innovation and ideas. Mm-hmm. And we're going to still keep producing this innovation. No one's going to stop us. We're going to keep moving forward. And we get up get knocked down and get up, get knocked down, get up, and we just keep moving forward. This is a great conversation, but I do, there's a couple of things that Esther and I want to know. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> some some kind of uh, fun things around, um, you know, medical technology. Have you given any thought to what you'd like to see invented that you think would change the world? Any ideas that you've thought of to say, I would love to see this solution made? Uh, I, I have not, because <laughs> after dealing the the here, uh, I mean, know, it's almost and, like and, me asking you, like, what's your favorite album? <laughs> well, well, I mean, you know, the truth of the matter is, and, and you know, when when you're fighting for survival, uh, you don't have the luxury to to stop and ponder <laughs> and, and imagine. I'm about to get to the place where I had the time to ponder. Right now, I love you know, it. I'm just I'm 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 just trying to get a high quality company stood up and funded um, and so that we can have a great foundation. And that's one of the things that with our team, we, we've set, we've stood up a company that is ready to scale. You know, we have 300 members right now, but we built the infrastructure for something much, 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 much bigger um, because we're going to build that. Um, so we didn't cut any corners at this stage of the game because we, we aim to blow this thing out. That was an excellent conversation. Terrific. I have learned so much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Whitaker. Uh, Sure, Esther. I love uh, being with both of you. I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. And I'm Eric. And this is the Honest Field Guide. We'll talk to you next time. Well, that conversation with Dr. Whitaker was great. I've never really believed in the power of capital. Probably because the type of business that I have with Berg Creative, 
doesn't require a capital lift. So I've, I've really taken it for granted how important it is for people to have it to scale and to grow. Yeah. Burke yeah. Creative is at its core. You could run it by yourself with no help if you wanted to. I mean, obviously you're growing and scaling and you have employees and things like that, but it's kind of something that you do with your hands mm-hmm. and, yeah. and your mind. And Dr. Whitaker is talking about things like insurance, that, <laughs> things that like just to... <laughs> Much service bigger. your client it costs money <laughs> yeah and he's come a really long way um from the south side to starting an insurance company is like yeah it, it's it's like almost like a light year it is a light when year he talks about where he started and then now talking about chasing money and he's talking about hundreds of millions of dollars right i loved when he said after president obama got elected he really didn't know what real money looked like and it's changed him forever. And, and on the one hand, it's encouraging because someone, for God's sakes, made it through. On the other hand, you're like, whoa. Yeah, it's, it's really encouraging, I think, because he said something really interesting. He said that when Barack told him that he wanted to be president, he didn't think that it could happen. Yeah. And so having proximity to someone standing next to you going, I'm going to do this. And you're like, sounds great, but I just don't see it because of the current <laughs> state of things. And, and many people would never yeah. think of that because of yeah. the current state of the world. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was a moonshot that landed. Yeah. And, and he talked about how that encouraged him to start thinking a little bigger as well. Yes, because he said, you know, I've been thinking too small. And, and when he said that, I thought to myself, well, it makes you wonder what other worlds we're not allowing ourselves to see, right? Because oh, of constructs that are everywhere, like whether him, they're intentional or not. If him coming from the South Side to being the head of the Illinois Department of Public Health is, is a light year, then what's the next light year look <laughs> like for him, yeah. right? Like it's hundreds <laughs> of millions of dollars. It just makes sense if right. he just does one more leap like that. Right. I mean, right. and the I sky's loved, the limit. I really love the conversation about, you know, the Chicago, you know, black community, business community, I love that conversation because I struggle with this all the time. I mean, this is such a hard state. It's such a hard city. And the black business community is really hard here. I don't care what anybody says. We have scarcity here that I don't see in other places. And talking with him about that gave me comfort because I don't, I'm not alone in this thinking. I sometimes I look around, I'm like, am I the only, am I, am I the crazy one? Like, am I the only one? And, and I felt really happy and satisfied that um, he validated how I felt about things. That was a great eye-opening moment for me. Yeah, I think all the other people moved. So <laughs> <laughs> they left Chicago like we're out of here. See ya. Like we totally agree. Be ya. Goodbye. No, I'm joking. No, um, it's yeah, real. it was it was thing. really great and it was really interesting to have such a candid conversation with someone like him who has such a unique perspective. Like who else are you going to talk to that's crossed all of these different boundaries and have seen things at that scale so that's and always still valuable and, still and it's still accessible is a really important part and it's still like amiable Down to in earth person. And exactly and have a yeah. conversation and you can kind of chill with yeah that was great and i think there's a there's a lot to learn from it so i'm really excited to see what people's reactions are going to be and it's, it's definitely something that i feel like is just full of gems and you just have to go back and listen to it because there's so many moments in it that you're like ah i see that The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago. 
Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Burke and Buell and Esther Ikoro. Thank you.